Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Guys, this is going to be an awesome one. I am your host. My name is Kevin Estella. I am the director of survival training here. I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, I've cooked a lot of dead animals over the years, and I am very excited to pick this podcast guest brain about it. And I'm just going to say this too, that it has been memed, and I think that's the past tense of the word meme, that men over 35 years of age are either going to take a serious liking into World War II history or into various smoked meats. If you guys remember, before I joined Fieldcraft, I spent many years as a high school history teacher. So that kind of already checks that box for my understanding of World War II. And the whole time I've been interested in, in grilling and, and smoking and, and cooking up meat. So this is going to be a good one. Uh, I need to up my smoked meat game as well as my grilling game, which is why uh, I tend to go on Google and I look up different ways to grill, cook up wild game, learn from the best out there on the internet. Now, somewhere in my research, I stumbled upon an Australian chef and internet personality named Jess Priles. While I don't recall the exact recipe she was making online, I'm going to tell you anytime she sprinkles hardcore carnivore, which you'll find out what hardcore carnivore is in a second. Anytime she puts hardcore carnivore spices over domesticated meat or wild game, it's going to end up looking amazing. Uh, so I started following her on Instagram, saving her recipes to my try this folder, you know, that little tab that you can put on your, your IG account, you know, saving things here and there. And since many of you listening are likely foodies or meat connoisseurs, I am so happy to bring this meat expert on the show to talk about what you can do to become the pit master of your dreams or become the star of the backyard smoker game or just simply level up your cooking game. So with that meaty intro, and by the way, there's going to be a whole bunch of meaty, you know, references with that meaty intro, I present to you and welcome Jess Priles. Jess, thank you for being on the show. How are you? Well, that was a hell of an intro. Like, I'm just going to put it out there. If you, if I ever get a chance to like meet a hype man before I go out on like some kind of massive stage or wrestling event, you're it. Oh, that, thank you so much. Yeah. Bruce Buffer. Uh, I don't think he has to worry about losing his, his day job with all the boxing matches and things like that. But you know, I, th I think I've spent a few years honing my, my radio voice, so to speak. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I try to, I try to make sure I don't stumble over my words too much, but, uh, right. but thanks so much for joining us. I'm like I said, the, no BS. I am so excited to talk to you because as I said in the intro, I will spend hours going into the internet and just looking up stuff. And next thing you know, it's like, all right, uh, let's look up different ways of deep frying this and let's look up different ways of this and that. And it's like, next thing you know, there goes an hour, two hours. And <laughs> I don't feel like I've wasted time, you know? So, uh, let, let's just get right down to it. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny you say that just real quick. I hmm. feel like as long as you're looking at things that serve a purpose beyond entertainment. So there's some kind of educational factor. You've never really wasted your time on the internet. That is and true. And that speaks a yeah, lot I'll to give the you videos that. that I like to make. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. Uh, you know, it's kind of like with anything that you read, it's either educational, informative, or persuasive. And sometimes it's mm -hmm. all three of those, uh, which I want to talk about some of the persuasive videos that you've done with like meat glue and is it <laughs> is it okay to eat a raw steak and things like that. But first off, how many times do people get your accent incorrect? Mostly, I guess they assume that I'm English. I'm Australian. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have like a weird hybrid accent. So most people, some people get it, but 
at least like random people commenting on the internet. It's like, why is a British lady telling us how to make barbecue? Uh, where is that hybrid from? Like what, what's the reason? Is it because you were from Australia, but now you're, you live in, in the South, right? Yeah, I live in Texas, so mm-hmm. we're a state unto ourselves, but I grew up in Australia. I only moved seven years ago, so it's predominantly Australian accent, but then there's, you know, so I, y'all has definitely crept in there, and there's a couple <laughs> others in there, too. Yeah, our uh, one of our guys that works for us, Kevin Owens, he's from Ireland, and he spent many years in the Irish Army, Irish Special Forces, came over to the U.S., became a Green Beret, became, you know, total badass. And now if he talks to someone from Ireland, they say, you don't have a, a traditional Irish accent. And he said that <laughs> if he were to go back to Ireland, he'd probably have guys want to fight him because of, you know, his accent has changed and it's not like a true, like pure blood Irish accent. So I don't know. Do you ever get crap for having a, that hybrid accent? No, when I go back home, my Australian accent gets much stronger because mm-hmm. you kind of, I think when you're, when you have an ear for languages, you end up kind of talking back what you hear. Like if you were talking to a, you know, someone from Brooklyn, you'd probably end up being like, yo, <laughs> we'll go to get some pizza. Maybe not that hard, but you know, you do. It's like when you, you know, you ask for tacos, not ta- tacos or tacos or whatever. So I don't know. It's, it's always a source of fascination and conversation. And, um, I have learned to just, you know, laugh about it. So Okay, so I'm going to ask this question because I ask it of all of my good friends with foreign accents, you know, the Irish, the South Africans, uh, and the British. What is your favorite bad word to say or cuss word or swear uh, that is purely like an Australian thing? Like if I if I meet another Aussie, what can I say to them where they're going to be like, oh, you didn't just say that, did you? Uh, is well, there- I don't know if you're fishing or not, but I feel like what you want me to say is cunt because <laughs> pretty much – it's known as being the word that Australians use both friendly in a friendly way. And, um, and we do bandy it around more there, but I will say this just like in the United States, there's different Uh social groups, there's different socioeconomic groups, there's different, um, cultural groups. And you can't just walk up to any Australian and bust out a C-bomb. Right, um, right, right. Some people, you can use it pretty organically and they won't be offended. Um, and and we're not talking about using it as an insult either. It's more like a term of endearment or right, a term of right. recognition. But I like it's become such a joke now that I feel like people are going to go to Australia on vacation and walk into like their pretty nice hotel and say the receptionist, like, how's it going, cunt? And she's going to be like, pardon me. <laughs> Yeah. So we don't, so use with caution. Yeah. It's kind of like when you say, uh, out here, like, oh, he's a good shit, you know, like you, you gotta, you gotta know the audience before you drop that bomb. But, uh, no, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't looking for any in particular, but well, you got it. I got it, man. <laughs> that, that took it to like level 11. And if you're fans of, uh, this is spinal tap, you know that you can always take it that one extra step to 11. So, uh, let's talk about your, what did you call it? Meat education or meat education? Uh, mm-hmm. because you're not just like a hobbyist who, you know, says, Hey, here's my camera. I'm going to throw a couple things on, on the internet. Uh, you've actually studied to understand the, the chemistry that's involved and the sciences that are involved. So can you kind of give like a little rundown of like how you like elevated yourself to that level of having a better understanding than most? Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, it started as, um, a very organic, like I, I grew up in a house where I wasn't really taught how to cook meat. 
Um, my dad always cooked steaks well done on a gas grill. Oh God. Um, my mom doesn't eat a huge amount of meat, so she didn't really care about becoming a great meat cook. And so I didn't really know what to buy at the grocery store. I wasn't really sure how to cook steaks. I just kind of left them for when I went out to a restaurant and assumed it was all too hard and too complicated and too expensive. And it, and it was kind of like a, when I first visited Texas, you have barbecue, it's what you do. And I kind of got obsessed with finding out more about it and wanting to eat more. And in learning more about barbecue, I kind of picked up all this information about meat in general and cooking steaks. And um, that's what I started sharing on my social media profiles. You know, I'm considered a dinosaur in the world of social media because I've had them for over 10 years. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's ancient, right? Um, but that's how it started for me. It started by sharing information that I was learning to make myself a better meat cook at home. And then, you know, I think when you have a thirst for knowledge, um, you know, you talked about being a teacher, mm -hmm. you always seek out information, especially when it's a topic that you're passionate about. And I found myself sort of not being just content with, oh, okay, that's how to cook it. It was sort of, okay, what's next? And and how to make the best barbecue. And then it pivoted to, wow, there's a lot to do with the meat before it even gets cooked. That has, that's really interesting. What is that juice in, in the package? And <laughs> Um, that's really starting to get into the territory of, of meat science, which is basically the study of, of, you know, increasing quality and yield and food and, and safety of the meat that we eat. Um, and it goes into a lot of things like, um, how to maximize production, um, and, you know, kind of more boring stuff like that, like high yield off, off lower animal counts, but, then it goes into stuff like breed and water holding capacity and all the different things you can do pre, uh, peri and post mortem to affect the meat quality, how to handle it in our homes and stuff that we just like learned that we've never questioned, like assuming that once you defrost meat and cook it, you know, you can't refreeze it. Um, because I don't know why, that's just what I've always been told and that's not true. So it was really fascinating kind of, figuring that out so much so that I decided to go back eventually to school because I'd learned a lot about it. It was twofold. I also wasn't really getting the credit for the amount that I knew. You mm -hmm. you kind of touched upon it and I, I sort of hate to say it, but there are so many people right now online that are self-proclaimed experts who are happy to just kind of get your attention to their channel. And, uh, you know, many of them give incorrect information. Many of them aren't what we would consider like legitimate real world experts. Um, that's not really a subjective thing. <laughs> and so I wasn't, you know, with the rise of the amount of people that just put content out on the internet, I wasn't really getting due credit for the amount of work that I'd done to actually learn things. So that was part of wanting to go back to school, but then just the desire to actually get more knowledge and understand a deeper understanding of these concepts. Um, and so by the end of this year, I'll be finished with that graduate course at Iowa State University. Outstanding. And I'll tell you, like, I'm listening to to what you're saying and I'm like, man, I've like, I've got like 20 talking points on everything that you just said. Uh, <laughs> number one, the idea of being the dinosaur in the social media world, you're right. There are people that are coming out left and right. And the, 
the risk is these folks who have no true credibility, but they are very good at getting a message across, they're charlatans. And there's a risk of them putting out information that might not be correct. And as a result, someone gets sick. Or in my case, if I put out incorrect survival information or bushcraft information, I could get a person injured or killed. So there's there's something that has to be said about what you put out online and accountability. And for the folks that are out there listening and you're like, well, I follow this guy or this gal and they're an expert. Well, is that truly an understood term? You know, most experts that are out there won't even like that term expert unless it's needed to be used to understand like your role in a bigger group. Like if I get hired as an SME, like a subject matter expert, I don't go around being like, I'm the expert. I say, I just happen to know more about this than the average person. Um, right. But now going to your comment about like wanting to learn everything about, about me, you know, as a teacher, I used to teach, uh, Upton Sinclair's the jungle book, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite books to this day, because it's just, a lot of people would turn vegetarian if they, if they read it. And if those conditions existed today, uh, 100%. you know, but, uh, but even when you said like, Oh, washing or uh, prepping the meat, I know you have a, you have a thing against washing meat. And I just want, I just want you to like touch upon that because I don't, I don't, I use the fire to, to sterilize everything and cook it. But what's your take on washing meat? And can you just like put some maybe uh, hipsters in their place if they, if that's still what they do? I don't, I mean, I don't, so, okay. I don't have a thing against it, but even the fact that you use the terminology, well, I just sterilize things by heat. That is a, that demonstrates a greater understanding of the concept of food safety than oh, thank most you. folks, I, including myself had back in the day. Like that's what I was kind of getting at with sometimes we just do things because the people around us did those things and we don't necessarily question them. It's just, well, well, I don't know. I thought that's how you washed meat or I thought that's how you cooked a steak or I, you know, whatever it is. And so the thing of it is this, it, it's a food safety issue. Mm -hmm. So because most people don't understand that that heat will kill any surface bacteria. And obviously, if you cook something thoroughly, we talk about cooking chicken to a minimum temp, et cetera, et cetera. The, people think that just rinsing meat cleanses it. Um, because if you don't know better, that's what you assume. And so the USDA has tried to explain to people that you know, while while on the one hand it might seem innocuous to rinse your meat because you're not doing any harm or foul, in fact, the micro droplets that could splash off the mm. meat might in fact be ultimately more of a problem than just not rinsing it in the first place. Um, and so I've kind of done a couple of videos on this, mainly what I call, you know, stitching, which is on uh, when you take someone else's video and kind of react to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you play theirs and then you respond to it. Um, and what I didn't realize was that it's also very common to wash meat in particular cultures as well. And that has come from a history of having really bad access uh, or having access to really poor quality meats or poor refrigeration. Um, but it's, I mean, this is a whole podcast for another time. Oh yeah. It's also yeah. uncovered a whole thing of like, okay, cool. I understand that might be the history but here's all the science-based evidence as to why we can move past that now. Um, and then they get really, there are some people who get really offended that you are attacking a cultural tradition of theirs. And I've had some pretty like 
eye-opening comments in response of like, wow, I can't believe this has devolved to this. I'm just trying to tell you food safety. Cool. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, I have to tread carefully because it has unlocked like some really intense comments that even, like I said, shocked me. Um, and for me, it's just, I don't, I don't really think anything about it. And I'm not trying to grow on a, go on a crusade. It's like anything I'll, I'll just share food safety practices to make anyone better in the kitchen um, or to help anyone feel a little bit more confident, whether it's about freezing, whether it's about washing meat, whether it's about those, like, frankly, um, there are, there are tampering videos too, where people will try and pretend that worms are coming out of pork Mm. and their grains of rice. So that's what I like doing. Hey y'all, we wanted to take a quick break to let you know that this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com. Your mind is one of the most powerful tools and valuable assets that you can have. Keeping it sharp is so important. There's no shame in needing someone licensed and ready to navigate your mind with you. Life's challenges can be tricky. And just having clarity and having someone to express your concerns and whatever those coping skills are too, and have them clarify that you're moving in the right direction can make all the difference. What BetterHelp has done is they've connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. Super convenient, super easy, accessible anywhere, 100% online, and totally private. And guess what? If you don't like the therapist you've connected with, you just move on to the next one. So you still get to be in the driver's seat. You still get to be in control, but BetterHelp does all of the vetting for you and they keep everything secure and they make it so convenient. Right now, if you visit betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash fieldcraft, the benefit code to get 10% off for being a fieldcraft community member will automatically be applied at checkout. So visit that website today. Y'all, let's get back to the show. You know, you think you live in a civilized world until you read online comments. And I make it a point not to to even read the comments anymore. I mean, if someone sends me one like, dude, this guy's blowing you up. I'm like, I don't know who he is. I don't even care who he is. You know what I mean? Like, and especially if they're attacking me and not the, the facts that I'm putting out, it's like, I don't care. Like, I don't know you, your opinion doesn't matter. Um, but it's interesting what you said about the different cultures and how they handle things. Uh, back in 2018, I had a chance to do a management hunt over in South Africa where we were professionally culling animals off of game preserves. And then we donated the, uh, plains game meat to the Amasango career school. And I was talking to the to the professional hunters and to the trackers and whatnot. And they said, yeah, you know, we at one point deboned everything and we delivered that to the school. And they said that the kids didn't want to eat as much of it because culturally they liked having the bone on the meat. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, they, they would eat it more willingly if they knew that it had a bone as opposed to, uh, just being a, a boneless piece of meat that was like, professionally butchered. I'm like, that's really, really interesting. Um, so yeah, there are, there are strange things that happen from one culture to the next and you're spot on in that, you know, people get very passionate thinking like, Hey, this person is talking about us. It must be an insult. And meanwhile, we're just talking about the truth. 
You know, this is what happens. We're not saying it's good, bad, and different. There are many ways of doing things instead of just the way. And this is the way that these people do it. No, right. you know, nothing, nothing negative here. Right. Um, wow. So I can, I can imagine. I know, it's, a, it's a really difficult topic to talk about. <laughs> yeah. cause that, I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's the funny thing. Like it's never been, it's basically like you keep putting out the same thing every day mm-hmm. and how other people respond to it shows what's really going on. Like I haven't changed my messaging or my story. So, you know what I mean? Like, but it only ever happens on that video, let's say. Which it speaks to your brand integrity too, right? I mean, and that's really important. You know, it's, it's important that your message doesn't necessarily uh, change. I mean, it might adapt a little bit, but you still Mm -hmm. have the same mission, the same way that, you know, my goal as an instructor, I want to make sure that people are able to level up their skill sets and their knowledge and, and acquire the right gear. And maybe I'm able to motivate someone, inspire them. And that hasn't changed since 2007 when I officially got into the game. But, uh, you know, there are companies out there and there are people out there who, unlike you, the minute that they get pressured, oh, they got to change, change the narrative. They got to change the story. And, and, mm-hmm. and it says something about integrity. It's like if, the, if your message is really strong, it doesn't matter how much you come after someone, you stick to that message, you know, and, and I think you've got a good one. Um, let's talk about hardcore carnivore, uh, whether sure. we talk about the book or the spices, what came first, the chicken or the egg, the book or the spices? How did, how did you get hardcore carnivore as a name and kind of give us a little bit of the history? Cause you were, I'm assuming that came after the, the YouTube and the Instagram and all the social media stuff. Yeah. So I had it under my name. Like I have two accounts now, not really. So I, my accounts are all Jess Priles and always have been. And then the, the business, um, has, which the hardcore carnival has its own accounts too. So there's two different accounts, some crossover, some different. Um, I had started using the phrase hardcore carnival uh, in like 2013, 14, 15, um, just because, you know, it doesn't take a brain surgeon. It rhymes. It's cool. <laughs> it's catchy. Uh, and I was obviously doing a lot of posting about meat and I was starting to use that term. And when I came up with the idea, um, the seasoning came first before the cookbook, but, but only by about a year when I came up with the idea of doing it, I, um, uh, of naming it that I just thought, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that kind of works. My publisher pushed back against it. Cause they're like, well, most, most, uh, book buyers are female and the word hardcore, you know, has connotations. And that was quite <laughs> hilarious, but I got them over the line with that in the end. Yeah. So does the word um, meat. Right. But the funny thing is, you know, so Sean Baker, who I think is probably the biggest um, uh, guy behind the carnivore diet, who's really propelled it into stardom. His first book on that came out after Hardcore Carnivore, the rub came out and the book for that matter. And so we do, I run into people every now and again who are angry at me because the cookbook is just a generic meat cook like no it just says it's called hardcore carnivore it's a really great name um it's not part of the carnivore diet but i do get people who are confused by it and they get angry when they're like i bought your seasoning and it's got like micrograms of sugar in it. I'm like yeah it's not a diet seasoning it's a for flavor seasoning and flavor should be balanced sorry like so um it's it's a cool name, but it's had its, you know, between the word hardcore and the carnivore diet, it's, uh, it's had its challenges, which is, it's quite amusing actually. 
You know, I, I wrote a book back in 2019 and I've had a very good run with it. And every so often you get like the negative, negative stars, right? Like you get like a two star review and, uh, my friends will send them to me and they'll be like, did you see this? I'm like, I, I've honestly stopped looking at them every once in a while. I'll get like a really good one. And, and it's about like changing someone's life. But the negative ones are funny because they often will point what's not in the book as opposed to the merit of what is right. So yeah. it's kind of like you go to, and I'll just throw out like a random, uh, restaurant chain. Like you go to Chili's or you go to like South of the border, you know, one of these Tex-Mex places and you say, man, I went there, but they don't have French food on the menu. This place sucks. It's like, well, no shit. You know, like let's talk about what is in the book as opposed to what you did not get in the book. And it's, it drives me up a wall. Uh, it makes me laugh because I'm like, man, these people must have the most miserable lives. Uh, and then you look at someone and, and again, internet stuff, deep dive, you look at the other reviews that they leave and it's for like the most just ridiculous stuff. Like I ordered this trash can and the lid only goes to 80 degrees and not 90 one star review. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like this person must be a miserable bastard. Um, so I, I get it. I'm, I'm sure that the, the carnivore diet folks out there, which just like CrossFitters, they want to tell everyone they're on the carnivore diet, uh, you know. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure they 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 got a little butt hurt, and uh, you know the the hardcore guys. I'm sure they're you know wearing the, their leather mask and they've got their whips and they're all upset that it's not something else. But uh, the the spices, I'm curious about that. That's got to take a lot of like government approval and like you you got to send it to the FDA for test like. What, what goes into bringing a product to market that's a consumable like that? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the state that you're in as well. Um, mm -hmm. So for us, we have only ever manufactured in with a co-packer. So I come up with all the, all the seasonings at home. Oh, okay. um, so I sort of experiment like a mad scientist in my kitchen. And then I take that recipe to a manufacturer who has a like – FDA inspected facility where they have to go to frequent um, conferences to figure out like what it takes to stay on top of, you know, on top of the, the that was not really trends, it's the laws. Um, so all of our stuff is made by a professional manufacturer. Okay. Uh, some states have cottage laws, like where you can manufacture stuff at home, for example, to, spell, to sell at farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. And different products will require different things. So, for example, spices, although they do actually carry a risk of salmonella in the raw spices themselves, um, are much less likely to get someone sick because you ultimately cook them. You rarely just use them raw. Um, oh, okay. Then, let's say, a sauce product, especially if that's going to be heated, that needs to be sent for shelf-stable testing. But... Unless it's a medication, you actually don't really need to send food off for testing. There's no law that says you have to do that. Uh, just better companies with better, um, I guess, policies and procedures might do that just to make sure their product is, is above board. That makes sense. That makes sense. I've got a, a few friends who have 
you know, branched off and they've done that type of thing. And, uh, they say, Oh, it's, it's such a difficult process because of the bottling and the labels and this and that. And I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that sounds like a nightmare. But at the same time, it's brilliant because it's not like you buy it once and it's a durable good that lasts forever and ever you're using it up and you have to buy it again. You know, like, uh, yeah. our, our friends over at black rifle coffee, they've got the best freaking business in the world. They've got a highly addictive drink that people will buy every <laughs> single day. Like, why didn't I think of that? Um, so let's let's talk about some of the, the food practices here. Uh, some of the things that you've you've preached. I'm on I'm on your website right now. I've got my laptop pulled yep. up and I'm looking at some of the the YouTube videos and I just kind of want to want to talk about some of these things that uh, people listening might say. Well, I do that or my dad always did that. Like I mean, my dad's from the Philippines. He used to do everything uh, as well done as possible. He's like really brown, 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 and and. and that's because, you know, he lived in the jungle, you know, and he had to cook, he had to kill everything off. Um, yeah. but, he, but he's also the guy that'll eat leftovers like nine days later, you know, like he's, <laughs> he's like, I'm from the jungle. I eat, I eat everything. I'm like, dad, you're crazy. Okay. So, uh, let's talk about this, uh, just keep flipping method. There are a lot of magazine articles that say a steak should only be flipped once and only once. What are your thoughts on flipping once just keep flipping that whole debate? So, you know, at the end of the day, much like doneness, rare, medium, rare, well done, it's it's really up to personal preference. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to prove that a method works to scientific standards, like where you could get it published in a journal. And that's why cooking isn't, I mean, cooking isn't really scientifically tested like that either, because it, it is so subjective as to how people like their steak. Do you want crust? Do you want grill marks? Like what, what, how do you like your steak? That's a preference thing rather than a data thing. However, there's a method called reverse sear, which is basically any low cooking and then high cooking. So for example, cooking a steak in sous vide and then searing it in a, in a pan, reverse sear, smoking and then searing, um, indirect heat on a grill, then direct heat on a grill. It's just the idea of cooking something over low temps first until you reach the temperature and then finishing with a very, very brief hot sear. And it's a really great way of ensuring that you get perfect doneness and edge to edge doneness every time. Um, and, and it's kind of like the training wheels of meat cookery. So that's how I started when I was cooking. And I think that also helped a lot of people get into meat cooking because they were like, holy shit, I nailed this steak. Like <laughs> yeah. it looks exactly like it's supposed to. Yeah. Um, and and the, like I mentioned, this is what was a barrier to entry to me, that idea of like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just like, is it seven minutes each side? How does that take accountable? Take into account which cut I'm using or the grade or the thickness? Or have I taken it out of the fridge early? And so once I'd sort of mastered reverse sear, I found myself as someone who really likes a good crust on my steak, really moving it around. I, I reverse sear, the problem with it is it takes forever. So for a reasonably sized inch and a half thick steak, it'll take over an hour. Um, when I was grilling, I would just flip the steak, flip it again in an effort to try not to overcook that middle. But I would find that even though the first few flips were pretty underwhelming in terms of what it started to look like, it would ultimately work. And I'd end up with a great crust and a perfectly cooked steak that was ready in maybe 15 minutes. And so I started to realize that that's that intuition that people speak of when it comes to cooking. Like, yes, you can follow a reverse sear recipe down to the wire and you'll probably get it right. 
Um, I don't know how good the crust will be, but you'll get it right and it'll have taken a while. But once you start cooking more instinctively and you get a feel for the 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 texture of the meat, um, you know, like a restaurant chef, a steakhouse chef, he can absolutely tell you where the steak is at by feel because he's done it so many times. Like anything we repeat, you get really good at it, especially mm-hmm. when there's a variable. If, in the t- terms of, I mean, it, I don't know as much about field craft survival or, or surviving in the field, but you can imagine cutting down a tree, uh, chopping wood is dependent on the species, the size of the limb, how dry the wood is, Mm -hmm. is it green? You know, there's a million things that you can try and explain to people in a book, but the best way they're going to learn is to just get out there and have a ton of experience with it until they just get a knack for it. And so once you have that knack, it is more natural to start cooking with the just keep flipping method because you're more connected with the fire, the flame, the heat. You're using it to your advantage. You're connecting with the piece of meat being organic not in the literal labeled sense but in terms of it's not a widget it's a natural product that changes um from animal to animal so you have to adapt to how it's going to cook too you know uh this year I did for my new year's resolution back to basics where I assume that the person that's watching my videos or whatever has zero understanding of anything that I'm doing. And I don't want to take for granted little bits of institutional knowledge. So when you're talking about cooking, if we do like a back to basics with what you just spoke about, when you're talking about like using seasoning, salt, pepper, are we using kosher salt, coarse ground pepper? Are we using charcoal, direct heat? Can you kind of like explain if you had to make like one steak, like the perfect steak, what is the ideal setup and why? So for me, if you were to hand me all the stuff tomorrow and say cook a steak, I would pick a charcoal grill. I would pick a charcoal grill because one of the flavor, but two of the control. So with a propane grill, you're limited by the strength of the BTUs, the output of the of the gas. Um, with a charcoal grill, I can set it up however I want, and I nearly always set it up with what I call two-zone grilling. Mm-hmm. So I light a chimney full of coals, which is the easiest way to do it, dump them all, and then I pile all the coals up to one side. And what that does is it gives me a side of the grill that's hot and a side that's not hot because it's indirect. But the key is also that hot side is roaring hot because I've concentrated the coals and the heat. Um, and, and that's that manual control. Is it getting too much? No problem. I can spread the coals out. That's why people who enjoy campfire cooking really enjoy it because you've got this big surface area to work with and you can kind of rake your coals however you need Mm -hmm. to. And it's very, um, functional and adjustable. So once I've got my grill set up like that, I take my meat out probably about 30 minutes beforehand. It, it doesn't ever come up to room temperature, but it does take the chill off. So it'll start to sweat a little bit or, or condensation will form on the surface as it is exposed to that room temperature. And you then grab a paper towel and wipe it dry because to get that great crust, which is actually a, an enzymatic reaction called the Maillard reaction, it needs to be a really dry surface. It's the same reason as why if you overload a pan with ground meat and too much water comes out, it'll always stay gray and it'll never brown properly. So pat it dry, salt it, or use, I would use hardcore carnival black at that point (laughs) immediately before I'm ready to grill it. That's just how I do it. You don't want to leave it on there because it'll start, that salt in the rub will start to 
pull moisture out of the steak if you leave it for for anything longer than 15 minutes. And this is without getting into the intricacies of like dry brining, which is where you Mm. purposefully leave it like that for 24 hours. But I would season it immediately before I'm ready to cook and then I would get it on that really hot side of the grill that's probably running at at least 500 degrees. And I would flip it every 20 to 30 seconds, moving it around, checking for my hot spots, which you'll see based on how quickly that color change is happening and keep moving it and keep moving it until um, I'm starting to see the crust that I want. If it's a thin steak, like a skirt steak uh, uh, or a flat iron, something like that, that's the only way I'll need to cook it and then it'll be ready in maybe under 10 minutes and I'll take it off. If it's a thicker steak, like a ribeye um, or a thick cut pork chop or something like that, you get the crust you want and then you move it to that indirect side. So now you have this safety zone and you close the lid and finish cooking on that indirect side until it hits the temperature you want. So for steak, we have various temperatures for doneness. And for pork and chicken, we have safety temperatures like 145 for pork to kill trichinosis, 165 for chicken to kill salmonella. Wow. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> charcoal, uh, but uh-huh. I just want to clarify, uh, hardwood charcoal or charcoal briquettes? So I use charcoal briquettes Full disclosure, I am sponsored by Kingsford. However, I'm sponsored by Kingsford because I used their product before <laughs> yeah. they approached me. You know, I'm sure it's the same in your world as well. 100%. It's always very important to me, yeah, to to be very authentic with the brands that I work with. And they're always ones that I authentically use and choose. One of the advantages of briquettes, which is also really interesting, the world of lump charcoal has gone up and down in the last couple of years, especially as ceramics like big green eggs or kamados have come into fashion. Mm. People are looking for huge chunks of charcoal because they burn longer and then you don't have to get your hands into this really hot ceramic grill to refill it. So there's been a lot of kind of pride of lump charcoal companies to produce these massive lumps that if you're grilling – are really bad because it's an inconsistent size thing. So when I cook with Kingsford, I know, we, and, and I don't use the match light product. I just use the blue bag original. I know how hot it's going to get. I know how long it's going to burn for every time. It's like always making sure your wood is dry. If you can, when you're making a campfire, because you know that it's going to be a better fire than something unpredictable. Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcrafts Are All podcast. I'm your host for this ad space. My name is Kevin Estella. I'm the director of training. Guys, give me just a couple minutes to talk about the company that is bringing this podcast to you. They support us. You should support them. Uh, the company this time around is Athletic Greens. Here's what I can tell you about Athletic Greens. Uh, I use them a lot. Uh, Athletic Greens, it's one of those things that we have here at the office that always gets taken uh, by the employees, whether it's the sample packs or the larger containers that have all the good uh, full size powder in there that you can put into your morning drinks. And you might be wondering what the hell are athletic greens? Well, athleticgreens.com is the website. You can check it out on your own. In fact, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash fieldcraft, you can get a free one year supply with your order uh, of vitamin D and then five free travel packs with your first purchase. So I still haven't told you what athletic greens are. You probably like the carnivore diet or you probably like the keto diet or you probably like, uh, you know, eating red meat and things like that. Um, and if 
you're kind of like the kid that never grew up. You probably don't like eating your greens, your veggies, things like that. So this is a great way of getting a lot of your vitamins, mineral, minerals, antioxidants, things like that. And just a quick, easy to mix green drink that you can have every single morning. I took this two years ago when I first got to Fieldcraft religiously over the course of, I think it was like 45 days or, or maybe two months. And I did that along with some intermittent fasting and I dropped a whole bunch of weight, like to the point where I dropped a, a lot of weight with the correct diet, but I never felt like I was fatigued. And, you know, talking to nutritionists, talking to different folks, they always said like, it's like getting multivitamins and getting even more multivitamins and you're getting all of uh, your probiotics, you're getting all of your uh, antioxidants, you are getting so much of what you need in a good balanced diet that you can consume so quickly. So uh, I'll tell you, I missed taking athletic greens. I haven't, I haven't had them for a while. I just started taking them again and they're great. Uh, if you've tried other green drinks, you know, it kind of tastes like grass. This does not have that weird flavor. You can actually mix athletic greens in with some of the other stuff that you take. Like if you do a protein shake, uh, throw in some like vanilla protein, throw in some blueberries, throw in some athletic greens. And now you have all your vegetables that you need, uh, in one drink. So guys, athletic greens is awesome. Uh, I've used them again for a very, very long time. I'm excited that we are having them back on the show as our sponsor because Ricky takes them, Rob takes them, I take them, Dee takes them, uh, Mike drinks drinks them. Great, great product. And as far as the vitamin D, if you live above a certain latitude, which we are here in Utah, you need your vitamin D intake. So you're going to get that vitamin D uh, oil and it's great. Um, definitely, definitely keeps you healthy and I highly, highly recommend it. So please check out their website, athleticgreens.com forward slash fieldcraft. That's the website. And, uh, that will take you to the place you need to go to to purchase what you need. And remember, you're going to get that free year of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Something that comes up all the time around the campfire uh, when I teach like the two day survival class and we do over the overnight and we have people cooking around the fire. I'll see mm -hmm. people come back with firewood and I'm like, do you really want to use that? And they're like, well, it seems dry. And I, you turn it over and there might be like a fungus growing on it. I'm like, think about mm -hmm. if you were to cook that, what spores are being released from that fungus? I said, maybe you want to find the best possible wood and cook on that. Um, something that's really funny. And I, I forgot to mention this earlier. You talked about using heat to sterilize. Uh, I've had people around the campfire where I demonstrate like some primitive cooking and whether that's like ash cakes or doing uh, like a steak on a hot rock. I've actually had a person say to me, but that hot rock is dirty. And I, and I say, <laughs> and I say to them, okay, well, what are you concerned about? I'm like, there was just glowing hot coals on that rock. That rock is super hot. Like you're seeing the way it's searing that meat right now. I'm like, what, what bacteria could live there? And then it looks like they they're in like all like a tizzy, you know, they don't know what to to say because it's the truth. Like you people cooked on rocks for years. They still do. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I think what's really important is just getting that knowledge out there. Like, look, you may not in an emergency have the traditional method of cooking food. You may have to revert back to these these caveman methods, so to speak. And uh, when people realize, wow, I can be super resourceful with limited resources. That's where like, there's the big game changer. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned crust uh, and you mentioned using charcoal. 
What about dry aging? How do you feel about that? Because I know some people are like, well, you know, it, uh, it removes a lot of moisture from the meat or other people say, oh, it inc- increases the flavor. Or other people say it's got mold on it. Like, what are some thoughts on that that people should be aware of? So dry aging is really interesting. It's definitely a passion of mine. I've written some papers on it for school and I have a dry aging unit at home myself. Uh, it is a, it's really interesting and I don't, I usually love to give analogies, but I can't find a good analogy <laughs> for this one because I've thought about it a million times. It's one of those things where it's fine until it's not fine, nearly like charcuterie, right? Or sausage making at home, dry sausage. Like it's fine until it makes someone really, really sick. Mm. At the end of the day, you're dealing with controlled decomposition, which is what aging is. And there's benefits to it, of course, which is an intensity and flavor from the dehydration and water loss, but also a tenderness, um, increase in tenderness from the natural enzymes being able to break down the actomyosin bonds of the meat and basically tenderize it because all we're doing with meat the entire time from the point of rigor mortis onwards is trying to undo rigor mortis. That's, that's the whole, that's the whole beef industry. Basically. How do we undo that? Right. That's interesting. Uh, so the problem with aging, like anything, you know, and I, it's funny cause you mentioned it before with the fungus, when we've talked about sterilization, There is also a difference between bacteria and toxins that a lot of people don't understand, which is that you can kill bacteria, but you can never kill toxins with heat. So mold and fungal spores like poisonous mushrooms will always be toxic no matter how you cook them. Uh, And it's the same with mold that grows on meat when it ages. So there's very strict conditions that you need to age. And sometimes we want certain molds to grow just like salumi or charcuterie where they're good molds um, that contribute to flavor as well. But until you can get under a microscope to determine what those molds are, like there's been some literature out there going, oh, as long as it's not black, you're fine. But there are some green molds that are good and there's some green molds that are a problem. Um, and it's, it's how do you tell the difference? Well, you can't. And that's why dry aging can be kind of a dangerous thing for folks to do at home because it can make you sick, especially if you don't know what you're doing. On a base level, because I can go, you know, I get real deep on this stuff sometimes. We like, bringing in, most, we like bringing in passionate guests, so go for right, it. Right, right, right. As it's most basic, it's definitely not something you do by throwing meat in, in the back of the fridge and hoping for the best. Um, I know there are dry aging bags out there. I don't think they should be called dry aging bags. It's kind of like if you're a Metallica fan. Arguably, they should have changed their name after, you know, after the 90s um, because it's very different music. So you you, that's why you have to say like old Metallica, not new Metallica. Right. So it's not technically dry aging at all because you are getting some water loss through shrinkage. But those films. Sorry, it is technically dry aging because you are getting some water loss. No, it's not. Hang on. What am I trying to say? It's not technically dry aging because it is in a bag and that film isn't one directional as it says that it is. So you are going to get off flavors from the fridge in there as well. And it's closer to like 
a dried vacuum seal than a true dry age. It's just different. It's hard to explain. The safest way to age meat at home, especially if you're into wild game, is actually to use vacuum seal. And that's what wet aging is because you will still get a breakdown of the the enzymatic breakdown, which will cause the tenderness. You're just not going to get a concentration of flavor and you don't want to do it for too long because it can actually have a an adverse effect on flavor by bringing in sour notes, anything over, let's say, 28 days or so. But it's it's the safest way to do it in that anaerobic environment. Man, you know something? I'll tell you, there, there are so many overlaps and so many universal concepts that get brought up in, in conversations. And when you were explaining how you may kill bacteria, but you don't kill the toxins, that is a topic that comes up when we discuss water purification in an adverse uh, scenario, right? Where you may be able to treat uh, against Giardia or Cryptosporidium. But if there are heavy metals in that water, you cannot treat that out of the water. Um, mm-hmm. So those would be toxins as well. So again, it's very interesting to see where the conversations that we have on one level reappear uh, and are restated in other conversations. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I will take that chance with dry aged beef uh, to this day. I will say there, there are two steaks that stand out in my mind as the best meat I've ever had in my entire life. One was at cut in Beverly Hills with one of my, my good buddies. He took me out with his girlfriend at the time. We went out there and we, we had a great meal and it was a dry aged steak. Um, and have you followed the flip flop guy? Do you know Andy Muckle? Uh, he's a, a, I don't, I'm sorry. It's all right. It's all right. You'll all have to connect the two of you because he does a a flip flop method with a deer leg. And the first time I, yeah, the first time I had it, I was like, I can't believe this is venison. Like I, I eat venison probably, geez, maybe half the month, like every night, like I'll have all the venison. So, uh, I'll tell you, I've never had venison as good as the way that he does it. Um, so I'll have to connect you guys, but, uh, but those two steaks stand out, you know, in my, in the forefront of my mind is like the best I've ever had. Um, how do you feel about impossible burgers? I don't really, <laughs> you don't, I you- just don't, I, I think it's, I think it's part of the virtual signaling of the current generation where they, you know, I, I think it's very cool not to be a meat eater. I think that people ignore facts about um, sustainable meat production. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, there is a big global output of meat, of greenhouse gas emissions from meat production sits somewhere about in the 20 something percent, but in the U S it's less than 3%. Right. Right. And, and I, then you don't think about Brazil and India being huge, huge, um, for example, that's just two of them. There's, there's other China is another example of huge, huge meat producers and how we can't be, you know, we're, <laughs> you choosing to, to go meatless on a Monday, not you personally, but put it this way, you save more carbon, avoiding one transatlantic flight return flight than you would by going plant-based for an entire year. Um, so, and I also think that there's something to be said for like the natural product versus the highly engineered product. There's nothing necessarily wrong with engineered products. We see that in meat as well with things like, you know, bacon or bologna or what have you. But, um, if it's just funny that there's this cognitive dissonance that people think that they're mm-hmm. being somehow more natural where it's even more hyper engineered. And there's still a question of sustainability about that too. So 
I, I just, I think at the end of the day, the only thought that I really have on it is that it shouldn't be allowed to be called meat and it shouldn't be allowed to use the words like beef, chicken, what have you. Right. If, if anything, say like beef style or beef flavor, but don't call it, you know, don't call it meat. Yeah. Uh, I think the meat companies are putting that argument in, in court at the moment. You know, I think. I remember having a discussion a while back with an academic and we were talking about the increase in hormones in meat and the correlation that this academic was making was to the average size American or, you know, man and woman. And then also, uh, how quickly those average size men and women and, and boys and girls grow to full size. And this academic was arguing that, uh, he believes it's the hormones getting passed to the consumer that are making us get bigger than we were, say, 200 years ago. You know, like when you look at you go to a museum and you look at, say, like the the average clothes that were worn or uh, the shoes that were worn. It's like, wow, who who was wearing that a child? And then you find out that it was a full grown man or a full grown woman. Do you have an opinion on that? Like as far as like what? Do you, do you feel like we're going in the wrong direction with trying to bring animals to slaughter too quickly or, or would you, if, if you could, you know, wave a wand and say, this is how I want it, would you go all natural and, and free range? I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so it's pretty interesting. The hormone thing is not as simple as you think. We've talked a lot in this conversation about how a lot of things are just like a lot of information is just not... <laughs> I have to think about how to phrase this because it's actually really important. Very sure. We've yeah. talked about things like you don't know about sterilization until you know, because until you're challenged to assume something other than what you were taught, why would you think twice about it? Why would you think about what pasteurization is beyond, I just know it's a word on my milk. And in that vein, sometimes there are concepts that aren't easy to either dumb down or simplify or make an analogy for, and a lot of scientific complex, uh, uh, a lot of scientific um, concepts are like that, where until you have the building blocks to understand this basic science, I can't explain the higher level to you without you understanding it. I can't simplify it for you. And so a lot of the things that we assume using logic are not necessarily what happens in the science of things. So we might logically assume that the addition of hormones in meat is responsible for the growth. But for example, the USDA regulates that you can't use hormones in chicken mm -hmm. and yet we're still continuing and, and, and you haven't been able to do that for many, many years now. And yet we're still growing as a, as, as a, a group as a race, as a, whatever the homo sapiens are. So that's not that. I don't think that's responsible for it at all. Honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, I also feel like there's an interesting, you talked about heavy metals and Giarda and, and right, things like that, right. right? Yes. There's an interesting, uh, let me, sorry, I'm going to take a step back. Let me start by saying I'm a hunter. I started hunting when I moved to Texas. I love it. I love the self-sufficiency of it. Um, a lot of Americans are very lucky that venison and, and is, is just a very forgiving meat in terms of 
the things that could go wrong with it. So mm -hmm. we talked about chicken noses and porks, salmonella and chicken. Because I have seen some people butcher some venison in ways it's like, Ooh, okay, go for <laughs> it. Um, so I, I am a hunter. I, I love it and I support it. I do find it hilarious that there's this thing amongst hunters that it's like, my meat's organic. I know where it came from. It came from nature. Well, you can't hike into the most intensely pristine, remote nature area and just drink the water. Right? Right, right. So why would you think that you can go in there and just eat the meat? That's a very interesting way to put it. The amount of research we've done, even with like identifying CWD and what that's about and how that can affect us as humans and the way that that's overlooked. And for, and you can't, I mean, unless you're a backcountry hunter who can guarantee me, you know, X amount of miles around your animal, certainly in Texas, we all hunt on feeders. You can't guarantee me that that animal is organic. You can't guarantee me on a low fence that it didn't go into a neighbor's yard that's feeding non-organic product or mm -hmm. that has crops in the field that's spraying them and it's nibbling at the crops. The point is that you don't know anything about that meat before you shot it. And yet somehow that's okay. And we praise ourselves for that. Now I'm not trying to make you feel bad for it. I think it's, you know, again, I'm a hunter. I think sustainability, self-sustainability is amazing. But why don't we have the same conversations around it? You know, I never thought of it that way, quite honestly. And I've said that, like, I'm guilty of saying that, like, I know exactly where this animal was right before I shot it. Um, but I could say the same thing in the same vein. If I went to a slaughterhouse and I watched an animal go through the butchering process from start to finish. Um, yeah. And I, in other countries like Australia, you'll know exactly which farm it came for as well. And if you go to the grocery store and you buy meat, there's a little stamp on it that says the establishment number that'll tell you exactly the processing plant that it got processed in. And then you can figure out the date of production and you can figure out who the USDA inspector was who was watching it at the time. Yeah. Like, I think there's room for both to coexist. We don't have to hate on one or the other, you know? Yeah. Spot on. And you know, uh, the guys over at field ethos journal, um, you know, I have talked to them a bunch of times. They don't like the term harvest. They're like, just call it killing, right? You're hunting, yeah. you're, you're killing things. So, yeah. you know, that's one of the, the words I'm very sensitive to using now. Like I, I will never say ever again, like, Oh, I harvested an animal. It's like, no, I, I shot an animal or I hunted an animal. And now I've got to be super careful because of this podcast to say, I know where this meat came from. Like I, I I'll, I'll change it. I will edit it, self edit. I will say, I know where I shot this <laughs> because that's but you don't know where it was right like that's that you don't know anything about the history of the animal do you know you probably more than other people know some keys of what to look for to check for the health of the mm -hmm. animal yeah. you know you cut the heart open you can cut the liver open to check for flukes um most people don't have that level of knowledge man what a what a great great way to kind of we're we're almost to the end of this podcast but like what a great way to like wrap things up damn uh that's that's a deep thought right there deep thoughts by just priles um <laughs> so uh what are what are some of the other things that we haven't touched upon that like you thought oh man we're doing this podcast with fieldcraft we should talk about it i mean we could talk about ground meat versus uh you know cut steaks and which one you know, uh, has more bacteria. I mean, there's so much we could get into, but if you had to leave the listener with like a message or a couple things like, Hey, check this out. It's worthwhile because X, Y, Z, like, what are the top three things that we haven't talked about that we probably should. And then, you know, we'll let you go. 
I guess it would just be that I would encourage, I, I can only assume that you have a lot of hunters for sure listening. And I, and I think that there's such a great opportunity to take bits and pieces from meat science and apply it to hunting, even if not for safety, just for quality. Um, I do think that there's this kind of bravado amongst hunters where it's like, Oh, I don't care. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll slap this dry aged ham down on my tailgate and cut it and eat it. It's like, okay, that's cool. And yes, you can, but why wouldn't you take it into the kitchen at that point? If you're, if you're near a kitchen, you know, why do you have to eat it outdoors just because it was originally sourced outdoors and potentially get like dirt from your tailgate on there? You know, I know I'm being very oddly specific. That was a whole other video (laughs) from another time, but, um, I guess the best example I can give you as well is like dove hunting too. Um, I'm, I'm a dove hunter. I've, we, when, when it's dove season in Texas, it's 90 degrees. And so when I dove hunt, I have a bucket with ice that I sit on with, and that's, that's my little hunting stool. And the second that I down the bird, it goes on ice. And most hunters will have a dove vest and collect the birds in the vest Mm -hmm. and be out in the field for two or three hours. Um, And then at the end, you sort of come together and you start cleaning your birds. If you smell the difference in the meat that gets refrigerated straight away or or chilled straight away versus the meat that is allowed to effectively start to develop rancidity in it, it's not a safety thing. But wouldn't you rather eat meat that's less stinky? Right, right. So like – Maybe someone out there can just take a little nugget and think, huh, maybe I can apply some principles to my game to get the best possible meat out of it. That's that's that would be really cool. You know, you uh, I I got my my start hunting, uh, doing pheasant hunting, and I will absolutely attest there are some of those like 65 day, 65 degree days you're walking around in the field and it's like that's a warmer day than it is in my refrigerator. And I've got, you know, a pheasant in my my hunting vest, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just degrading. Um, but you, you mentioned dove and I have to say like, this is me being like a total, like Jess Prowl's fanboy um, with the recipes that you put out there. You did a video on uh, chicken fried dove breast with like a chili sauce. Oh uh-huh. my God. If I could be transported right now to your kitchen and like say hi to like, you know, the family and be like, Hey, I'm just here for the dove. Like I would kill to try that. Um, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to go dove hunting in a, in a long time, but I'm hoping once I get this trip, uh, out of the way, this relocation in North Carolina done, I'll be able to go bird hunting more. Cause I have to try that. So. Yeah. That was Nashville hot fried dove and you can do it with a lot of different, um, game birds too. Um, it's crunchy and yummy and, and, you know, spicy and, and full of goodness. And I love doing that. I love, not everything has to be wrapped in bacon y'all. That's see if I can. T- that's my final comment. <laughs> All right, go back to Australia. You don't belong. Here. <laughs> so, so Jess, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you if they have any questions? Uh, if they want to leave any nasty comments, obviously don't don't do that. But where can you guys? Uh, where can they go to get in touch with you? No, you can do that. We just won't read them. Okay, remember? that's right. So, that's right. Um, JessPriles.com is my website, but I'm definitely more kind of interactive on social media. I'm on all the social media platforms as JessPriles, P-R-Y-L-E-S. And you can also follow Hardcore Carnivore and get the seasonings and our gear at HardcoreCarnivore.com. Fantastic. Guys, please, please check out Jess's stuff. Uh, I'm not kidding when I say, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that I can watch her videos for hours because it just, it's wild game. It's domesticated, uh, cuts of meat. It's 
fantastic and you will learn something. And like you said, there's no reason why you can't be exposed to good education, good knowledge that relates to the kitchen and apply it to our sporting endeavors. So definitely pick up what you can absorb what's useful, right? Guys, mm -hmm. uh, and Jess, thank you so much for, for this podcast. Uh, stick on, stick around just for a bit. Um, but for those of you listening, hope you enjoyed it. And we will catch you next time on the Fieldcrafts for All podcast. <laughs>